There was an idea. Dormammu, I come to bargain. Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? Bunch of jackasses standing in a circle. Asking Robbins always finds out. I for the faster way. Are you Tony Stank? I am Iron Man. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Assembly Required, an MCU retrospective. The show where we reassemble the MCU piece by piece, movie by movie, and episode by episode. I am your host, Eduardo, and I'm joined by three lovely gentlemen. Chris, Peaches, Robbie. What's going on, guys? I'm I'm just feeling lovely. Perfectly splendid. Absolutely splendid. Yeah, they're perfectly, damn it! Perfectly <laughs> splendid. I'm glad that you said that because I'm trying to I'm trying to do the I've been inspired by Owen from Bly Manor and I'm working on growing up my mustache so that I can oh have, hell yeah I can have the the big mustache but also the stubble at the same time. Ooh, he was an influencer. Yeah, I he was probably my favorite character on that show. He was up there. Yeah. He was up there. He definitely um, was my favorite. Yeah, he was the guy that that cracks puns every ten seconds. So of course I'm going to like him. What am and I? And he's the cook. Guy? He was on a show called iZombie, and he yeah. is very similar. He's just always cracking puns, and he's always, like, the funny character, and he's hilarious in that show. I, I remember seeing people complaining about his accent, which is weird because he's actually British. Yeah. <laughs> so people are like, oh, his accent is so bad. It's like, there are plenty of Americans in the show who are doing fake accents. You got to pick on the actual Brit. Right. <laughs> I don't get these references. <laughs> Robbie does not uh, watch Robbie, the hunt. Robbie, it would be it would be similar to somebody saying when there's like a plethora of great places to eat in Orlando that Fridays was the best dining establishment. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you? My bad. Listen, Beefy King, seven bites. Okay, we've got uh, Taco Norteño. Um, we've got, uh, uh, MX Taco. Okay, fine. Domu. We have Domu? God, that was so aggressive. <laughs> and we have never had Domu, and I'm and so we sad have about Fridays. it. And we have Fridays. Not if I have anything to say about it. <laughs> oh, I'm just thinking about Kimmy Schmidt now. It's like, <gasps> we can eat the Olive Garden at Times Square. <laughs> I'm so upset. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking all about uh, episodes 9 and 10 of Daredevil. Big Fat Hand. Of the Devil, written by Christos and Ruth Fletcher Gage. Is that, does that man have just one name? It's Christos, oh, Gage, Christos and Gage and Ruth Fletcher Gage. Oh, yeah, they're, a, they're married. Husband and wife. I thought I it was so. like Seal. You know that reference is coming back, right? Because <laughs> I'm a Kiss from a Rose stan. <laughs> that is a great song. It's so good. Great that song. Was I listened to it today. Right <laughs> no joke, I listened to it today. But Christos Gage, he actually wrote wrote in the comic. Like He's a comic writer, in oh. addition to being a TV writer. Um, the second maybe. episode is Nelson V. Murdoch, written by Luke Calto. And directed by Farron Blackburn. Why do Mr. all of these writers have the weirdest names? I have trouble pronouncing them every week. Farron Blackburn sounds like a supervillain. 
You're not wrong. No offense, Farron. Your name just sounds cool. I mean, in a cool way. Yeah, supervillain names are cool. Farron Blackburn stole 40 cakes. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> that's as many as four tens. Gonna tell you what, Farron Blackburn kind of looks like a supervillain, too. Oh, well, I gotta Google Farron Blackburn now. Right, well, Lauren I'll work Blackburn, on the podcast while you go. Okay, go Blackburn, ahead. Where are you? Where are you? Let me spell their name wrong six different times before I figure it out. There we go. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah there's a... That's the lead singer of All American Rejects. Shut up. <laughs> Listeners, take this time to Google Farron Blackburn. <laughs> anyway. All right. All right. Our episode starts quickly with a brutal fight in an empty artist studio between the man in the mask and a ninja from the ninja hand. Fight. Ninja fight. Ninja fight. We're going to start already. One, I really like this episode. Two, I like this fight that kind of takes place throughout the entirety of the episode. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of confused about it at first, and then you find out later that it's sort of leading up to this. This is what we're, it's like a right. flash. This is the present, but we're flashing back to everything that happens beforehand. And uh, and I literally had to stop and make sure I was watching the right episode. Because yeah. like, wait, where did I leave off last time? And feel free There's to editorialize that fact, because I had no idea how to put that in the notes. So it's- thank you for bringing it up ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> It's really weird uh, and really cool, and I really like this episode just in general. There's a lot of really interesting themes, and there's a lot of, like, tension in this episode and a lot of drama, and I really enjoy it. Um, We are left in suspense about the fight after the opening title goes to Matt Murdock visiting his local parish and talking Father Lantham up on his previous offer to take over a lot, to talking over a latte. Matt asks Father Lantham if he believes the devil exists. And of course, like any good preacher does, he doesn't directly answer the question. He tells him a long story. Also, I don't have many notes about this episode, but one thing I did write is the when he's telling him a story, and then there's a pause, and he goes, so yes. you don't believe it. And he goes, am I done talking? I know, he was so stern. Yeah. He was, he was so sassy about it. He's lucky he wasn't a nun or the ruler would have come out. <laughs> Sound Lord, watch season three. Every nun I've ever met has actually been very nice and never. Sound Lord, watch word. season three. <laughs> oh gosh, really? Oh boy. Do we get flashbacks to Maddie's days in Catholic school? Uh, we get not flashbacks. The supervillain is a nun with um with nunchucks made of rulers. Oh, name is John Listen, Soundlord, if yeah. you think Catholicism is the main character of season one, watch season three. Oh boy. Well, I'll have to watch season two first. Uh, yeah, but it's fine. I, I'm actually getting real excited to to like I am really getting into this season and I think I am going to I, I think I've decided I'm gonna go ahead and watch the rest of this Good. Defenders verse. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. Well, so. let me know when you watch Jessica Jones. I will, yeah, because I think that's that because it's Daredevil. That would be the next one after this. Yeah, yeah, so I'm excited yeah. about watching Maybe we'll that. Do, I mean, we don't. What's the when's the uh... January? We have a date now for Wandavision. It's January, right? It's either the first or second week in January. Okay, so wow. then maybe we won't have time, but maybe afterwards. Well, wow, I have yeah. a date. And getting into how the sausage is made, we could also like if we decide there's not time, we could still just have an episode where we just discuss Jessica Jones as a whole. Like that's true. 
I would like that. I really like that show. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'd be excited to just talk about David Tennant. He's one of my faves. So. He's really good in it. Really good. Lantham tells the story of the man he knew in Rwanda who commanded the respect, ooh, excuse me, respect of everyone, but was brutally murdered by an uncaring warlord. The father says he believes the dog, the, the dog, the devil. <laughs> so you know what the problem is? You didn't say, the problem, Eduardo, is before the episode, you didn't say that we needed to get the puppy on the road, and now oh, you're, you're all right. trouble. You're thinking about the dog now. Yeah. Can you, you should just get it out. Just get it out of the okay, way. Let's get this puppy on the road. All right. There you go. You feel better? I feel much better. Thank you. <laughs> you always know the right thing to say. Uh, the father says he believes the devil walks among us, taking many forms. That, that asks, monologue was... Yes. My goodness. Yes. First of all, I loved it when he started getting into the weeds on biblical etymology. Mm-hmm. I love it when priests do that. <laughs> there, are, For those of you who have not been to... Uh, ever heard a Catholic uh, homily or really any any sort of sermon by any sort of preacher? There, there are many different kinds. They're the ones where they get up and you know they're pounding on the lectern. I have not seen many of those. That's not really the you don't see many priests who do that. That's that's more like a Southern thing, I think, where they're like, and the devil did this and that, and holding their Bibles up in the air and all that. You get the ones where it's very much about like the story and the this and that. And then you get some like we have a priest at our church where he gives like the best homilies because what he does is he he'll be like, okay, so this Hebrew word means this, and he will just like go into it on like it's like English literature or or what his homilies are like, and it's like yeah, some people probably don't like this, but I'm like, oh yeah, hit me, hit me with that uh that that ancient language stuff. <laughs> It's like, save my soul later. Tell me, tell me all about what that word means. I want to know about what the metaphor is. You know? It's, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's what that reminded me of when he's like, well, actually, you know, the word Satan means adversary. And, but then, the, you know, the, the turn, but then the turn into the, the, you know, the Rwandan genocide and all that stuff. I mean, it just got dark and, it is, you know, people always talk about show don't tell in TV, but every once in a while you get a monologue like like this one where it's like you just sit back and let someone tell a story and tell it well. And it, it, it is gripping, even in that moment. Mm-hmm. They didn't do a flashback to show, you know, here's what happened when, when Father Lantern was in Rwanda. It was just him sitting there in the social hall of his of his parish, you know, drinking coffee and talking to talking to this lawyer who's come to him for help, telling him the story about his life. And it was gripping stuff, yep. I thought. Yeah. You know, I found this conversa- these conversations between the father and Matt really sort of comforting. Um, I, like Chris, grew up a young Catholic boy. I went to Sunday Mass. I went to, I went to Sunday school. I, uh, I went to, like, Catholic school in the summer. Um, and as a young Catholic kid, I was terrified of the devil. It is, <laughs> as a kid, it was the scariest thing that I could imagine. There was nothing scarier than the devil because it's like what you're told constantly, right? You're just like, but you got to watch out for the devil, man. He's everywhere and he's going to get you. And it just was one of those things that ter- I remember there was, um, 
we went to like a like a family's Catholic church once, and it was like a big experimental church where they did a bunch of weird stuff, and they had this big oh. stage production of like life and it was like a bunch of people and it was like people that did good things and then there was like a stairway and it led to like a white light and they would go up to heaven but then when people did bad things a bunch of monsters came out on stage and were like demons and then there were people running through the aisles with like like pitchforks and then there was somebody who came out with a snake like a giant boa on their back and then <laughs> they were oh like, gosh. raise your hand if you want to be saved. And I was a little kid and I was like, me, <laughs> get me out of here. I would and never have slept again. It yeah. was it just the most terrifying thing ever. And even whole, to like, this experience. day, just like that stuff, like scared, like the exorcism, um, like the exorcist and all that kind oh, of stuff. I did not watch that movie for the longest time. Angela made me watch it. I'm glad I watched it, and I will never watch it again. Nope. That nope. movie yeah, terrifies me. Yeah, and I'm ninety percent sure it's mostly because I'm Catholic. The original, <laughs> the original Exorcist. Yeah, the original yes. Exorcist is horrifying. That movie I scares just, the literal hell out of me. I just um, don't agree. I don't think it's that scary. You are out, but of I own my friend. The three of us are in the majority here. <laughs> Listen, yeah. that's that's fine. I I didn't really grow up like super religious whatsoever, and I'm even less so now. So it doesn't get to me on that same yeah. level. Yeah, I think it gets me on two levels because it gets me on the Catholic level, absolutely, because it is all Catholic imagery and, and stuff. And, you know, like in the Catholic Church, exorcisms are still a thing. Exceedingly rare, um, but they are still a thing. We have learned that mental illness explains most <laughs> demonic possessions. And that maybe maybe healthcare is the way to go instead. Um, so you know we can we can learn. Um, but also, I think just on a personal level, one of my greatest like psychological fears is not being in control of your own actions. I find that just to be a very scary concept. So the Exorcist hits me on that level too. Yeah. So it just uh, that movie. See, that's the thing me. of all horror films. It's one of the only ones I've ever seen that does something that is somehow like believable is not quite the right word but like something that actually hits me on a level that it's 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 not just making me uncomfortable with gore which is why i don't like horror movies it's hitting me with a sensation that's and i know i'm not alone in this because this is how other people feel about that movie Mm -hmm. that just feels almost real Mm -hmm. Hmm. Uh, since we're already in tangent territory when i was 14 i had my first girlfriend uh her name was She was my first girlfriend that I ever had in my life. And the first date she ever went on, she wanted to go to the movies, and she wanted to see The Exorcism of Emily Rose. I'm 14 years old. This is the first girl I've ever dated. Obviously, I say yes, because, you know, you're like a young teenager. You gotta get that smooch. You know, you wanted that smooch. Exactly. You need the the end of date quick peck, right? And so I, I went to this movie with her. Her mom had to buy us the tickets because it was rated R. Right. And let me tell you, I was shitting my pants during that movie. It was so scary because I, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but they have like actual recordings of like Emily Rose and like oh, it like goes through like the story and like is like a dramatization of like what happened with her and everything. But then they have actual like audio recordings of what she sounded like when they were doing the exorcism oh, and it was very scary oh no <laughs> i watched that movie like years after it came out at a friend's house and we weren't really 
paying attention to it. I don't know. Like possession movies do scare me, but I think the thing about the exorcist is a, like I said, nothing really to do with religion in my life anymore. And it's kind of an older movie at this point. So like it's very noticeably an old movie and that kind of takes me out of the actual fear. Cause like for me, the realism, whether or not like the supernatural part of it is real or not, whatever the realism in a horror movie is what really gets me. Like I did see paranormal activity when that came out and that shit mm. scared me a lot. I don't know if that, if I don't know if you guys saw it. Yeah, I, I saw it. I, yeah. I've I seen the first the, uh, three, I think the opposite. I think I'm more scared of the exorcism stuff than I am at all of paranormal activity. Really? It's kind of weird. I don't know. Something yeah, about yeah. like the very, something about like the, the last 20, maybe 15 minutes of paranormal activity really gets to me. Like, especially at the very end, I know there's multiple endings. I don't want to scare any of you listeners. If you're not really into horror, <laughs> it's not the podcast for you, but there's, there's a, there's like three or four endings to paranormal activity. And there's one that just like, to this day, I can't even watch it because it just creeps me out so much. Where like the main character is like staring into the camera, oh like, yeah, looking yeah, like that's... looking at you oh, wait, after the movie. movie is over. Yeah, and that yeah. that one gets. She... Yeah, yeah, that that is a creepy ending. Yeah, I mean that's creepy. <laughs> I'll make it the same. Level I, mean, of I creepy, was even. But... Yeah, I, I I would still. I mean, I thought Paranormal Activity had had some good scares in it, but I, I would still say Exor- The Exorcist is the movie that has probably scared me to my core the most yeah. mm-hmm. i was even terrified of the the exorcist house they did at halloween horror nights a few years back which i know was oh it was so a, good people had mixed reactions to that one but that one just for and i think it's again just i built it up in my head as oh god it's the exorcist <laughs> so i was terrified the whole way through and this thought, and i thought they did a good job considering that that's a movie that takes place almost entirely in one room <laughs> and they made a walkthrough yeah. attraction out of it <laughs> My my version of your Exorcist is The Ring, so okay, yeah. okay. I've still not seen The Ring, actually. Oh, just, I mean, it's probably not scary anymore, but that really messed young peaches up. Yeah, I mean the 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 central plot point is like super Japanese, uh, like story wise. Like it's a girl that crawls out of a television and like strangles you to death, and then mm. goes goes back into the TV. And um, when I saw it. I was so afraid that she was going to come out of the TV that I put a blanket over my TV for like three weeks. You'd think because the, the premise of the movie is that you watch this really subliminal videotape that has a lot of like weird images in it. And then you get a phone call and then she comes after you seven days later. And you'd think seven days after I watched that movie and I did not get killed, I'd be like, oh, I guess it wasn't real. But no, my brain when I was younger was like, I bet she has so many people to kill that I'm just like, I'm like backlogged. I bet she's going to come after me. <laughs> two two things. I haven't seen The Ring, but I did see The Grudge. Um, they came out a, around the same time. A date I went on in high school. And as much as that movie did scare me because, you know, like the scary hair monster coming out of the corner of the ceiling. and the, uh, Yeah, stuff, that was freaky. Um, but the scariest thing about that was that I when I was on a double date and the other couple was making out the entire time um, and like not even subtly to a horror so, movie. Yeah. So like I'm sitting there with my with my girlfriend there and we're like, uh, OK, what's with you guys and going on dates to horror movies when you're younger? Robbie, did you go on a young horror movie? No, date? I saw the spy who shagged me. No, gold member. <laughs> 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 
You know, the first date I went on was Van Helsing, which is horror adjacent, but not really, I guess. Uh, but the other thing is, Peaches, I actually meant to tell you this. I had a dream. It was either yesterday or the day before. Um, the 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 main the mo- only important thing is that I was sitting outside of a Toys R Us, and I had the radio thing from Phasmophobia. Oh no! <laughs> and the, the voice- spirit box. Yeah, the spirit box. Yeah, and the voice just goes, Daryl. Furious, 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 furious. And I woke up thinking that a ghost named Daryl was mad at me. Behind. Yeah. Daryl. Behind. Adult. Yeah. Toys R Us. Oh, boy. Bakugan. <laughs> wow we are we are legendarily off track <laughs> for an episode that we all really liked I know, we really liked this <laughs> uh, ben yurik meets with nelson oh. and Erdogan to discuss being unable to find information on fisk's background <laughs> in the face of overwhelmingly positive press since fisk announced himself to the city Yurik says he has tried to talk to Detective Hoffman, but he's missing. When Foggy asks why the Devil of Hell's Kitchen doesn't take Fist down himself, Yurik says maybe he knows that there are some paths you don't come back from, striking a silent Murdoch. Which I found this whole like dynamic with um, Matt. First off, Matt is like really stoic in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When he's in these law offices, like they're all having this like conversation, and then there's Matt just standing there, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and like anytime he chimes in, it's to be like, we should do this, let's go do this, mm-hmm. and he like just kind of stares at everybody, even though he can't see them, uh, but he like, it's, it's like he's just staring at everybody. I did like Foggy saying he just shrugged and been apologizing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and I think that really sets up the moment in the morgue when he continues to be stoic and yet is getting white knuckle on his uh, on his yeah. walking stick. That was a good moment. I mean, he's got a lot going yeah. on. You no, know? I think like, obviously at this point, uh, obviously at this point, nobody knows that like what his identity is. And he's like, not only just getting madder and madder about not being able to do anything about Fisk, but like more, th- you know, we've all been in that situation where somebody that is in power keeps getting away with things and then they keep getting away with things and then they keep getting away with things. And then they open up a bar and, uh, and you know, I thought we were going in one direction. Yeah. Going- well, no, I didn't want to get in the politics direction, but you know, what, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about like, I think we've all been there and like, he knows he can't say anything. So what's he going to do? Like you, you, you get to that point where you like, you want to say something, but you risk being too emotional. And he's right. like, probably right on the verge of saying like, I'm daredevil. Yeah. <laughs> and I do wonder because you, you have to wonder if Matt's a little bit nervous that Ben's there. Uh, because Ben is not a stupid man. He is a smart man who his whole thing is figuring things out and making connections so there's got to be a bit of the sort of thing is like he's gonna figure out that I'm that I'm the devil of mm-hmm. Hell's Kitchen. He's like he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna figure it out. He's gonna write about it, and that's that's all she wrote. I mean, half of his face is exposed 
even with his quote unquote mask on and he doesn't really have a superhero voice. He almost has an identical voice to what he uses in the office. Yeah. And and, and had a whole conversation with him. Yeah. And Ben can say, well, the man, the man in the mask, his mask covered his eyes completely. And this man is blind, so he doesn't need eye holes in his mask. Right. Interesting. Robbie just made a face. <laughs> I just usually assume that the reporter actually does know the secret identity uh, all the time. I figure Perry White knows who Superman is. Um, I figure Commissioner Gordon, I know he's not a reporter, but he's a detective. I figure he secretly knows who Batman is, and they all just kind of go along with it for plausible deniability. Um, so I'm so until proven otherwise, I choose to believe that Ben Urich is either there or will get there. Wilson Fisk and James Wesley meet to discuss plans in the same studio from the start of the episode. They, too, do not know where Hoffman is and discuss reduced activity from the Devil of Hell's kitchen. Nobu angrily interrupts, saying the city block he was promised in return for helping the UAC operation still hasn't been given to him. Once again, you see Fisk show a little bit of fear to one of his, like, his group, right? Like it's not the same that he uh, experiences with Madame Gao, but he's like, I'm really sorry, Nobu. Like I'll fix this for you. Ends up getting Nobu killed, but you could see he's like starting to get a little, uh, little perplexed by his, his uh, compatriots. Yeah. City block is a weird request. Yeah. Yes. It, uh, so, it ends up being important, but yeah. I figure it will, and I have a feeling it will be important in a show with a different name as opposed to this one, but I could be wrong. Um, I don't know because I didn't watch that show, but maybe. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, well, I was going to say Defenders. Mm. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It is important yeah. to Defenders. That's right. It gets brought up yeah, in season two of Daredevil, I... and then it's significant for Defenders. Okay. Because I'm now, I had assumed Nobu was Yakuza, but now I'm thinking he's Hand, uh, that he's he's a member of the Hand. And what did the red ninja costume give yeah. it away? So <laughs> yeah, that was kind of, and I, that was what made me realize. And I believe oh, that was straight he's... up spelled out in the stick episode. Yeah. Oh, was it okay? Yes, Nobu is Hand. There you go. Hope that's not a spoiler. Right. I don't think it's supposed to be a spoiler right. at yeah. this point. Yeah, I think I'd figure that. Out. And anything with hand, I either assume that it will come into play in Daredevil season two or in Defenders, because it feels like like with like with that stick episode where it felt like they're setting some pieces for use somewhere down the line once we're past this Wilson Fisk Daredevil origin two hander. Fisk explains the block is occupied by a tenant that has been difficult to clear out the building where Mrs. Gardenas lives. Wesley also warns that Fisk is now the owner on record of the building, and anything bad that happens will reflect, will reflect poorly on him. Fisk says he will quickly clear the building, but asks nobody to take care of the man in the mask in exchange. He further alludes that people make mistakes when emotional. Mrs. Cadenas tells Nelson and Murdoch that Fisk doubled the offer for the tenants to move out, but she is still going to refuse the offer. Um, I, I have just one thing to say about this scene. In the year 2015, they're still making ha ha ha. The only sentence he knows is donde esta la biblioteca jokes. 
Yeah, that was a little awkward. That I don't know why that became like the go-to. I mean, I, I guess I did learn that very early in Spanish class in high school, but it's really weird that of all the sentences, that's the one that sticks out in people's mind and it has been used as the punchline of someone who doesn't know Spanish speaking Spanish so many times that it just really kind of distracted me yeah. <laughs> in that scene. Yeah, I agree. Matt seemed like annoyed by it too because he was like, "He, you just asked her where the library was. Like, Yeah, yeah I'm glad you said it so I didn't have to. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, Murdoch goes to visit Vanessa's art gallery after she was seen next to Fisk at his press conference. Uh, he quickly realizes the entire gallery is covered by armed guards. Matt tells Vanessa he's looking for art to fill his apartment. Let me tell you one thing about this before Fisk shows up. Before Fisk shows up, Matt Murdoch is smooth as fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is. smooth, yes. like yes. charming dude. dude. He just knew what to say. It's, it was really cool to see that side of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, and like this in the next episode, I feel like we see a couple sides of Matt that we've never really seen before. In this episode, we see this yeah. smooth as hell, Matt. And next episode, we see him actually smile right. for once in his life. No, but yeah, I, I don't know if you guys have read much um, like classic Daredevil, but in the classic Daredevil comics, Matt Murdock is like, you know how you know how Peter Parker occasionally gets really confident and can basically just uh, charm anyone. That's what Matt Murdock is always. It's uh, so, yeah. I just know that one panel of him walking like along the top of roof going to <laughs> boom and like, like yes Daredevil. yeah matt murdoch <laughs> is uh clever and charming he's and witty yeah he's he was really good in this um i need to read i'm i'm getting a new tablet soon and i'm very excited about it because i will finally get caught up on many many comics that i have not been able to read lately um but chip zadarsky who is one of my favorite comic writers who does funny very well but also does like pathos really well he had a run on daredevil recently and i'm very interested because i loved his uh he did uh peter parker's spectacular spider-man recently which was Mm -hmm. fantastic like uh if you i highly recommend that um one of my favorite spider-man issues i think i've ever read where it's just him and jameson talking in an apartment for the entire issue uh and it's great uh but i i'm really interested to read his take on daredevil same as he tries to subtly get information from her about Fisk, Wilson Fisk walks himself walks in. Yo. Uh-huh. Once again, I don't remember anything about <laughs> when I first watched this, and when this happened, I was like, oh, right. shit. Yeah, I, I felt <laughs> yeah. the same way. I totally right. forgot. Yeah. yeah. When she said he could ask him himself, it's just like, ah. Oh. <laughs> I started laughing, like nervous laughter when that happened. I like laugh like I've already watched the series and yet this moment still when he walked in like wait wait what happens does Matt Murdock die and I just forgot about it <laughs> like, <laughs> like it might be my favorite thing that's happened in the show so far I was like that caught me mm-hmm. it shouldn't have but it totally caught me off guard <laughs> I mean it's tense enough you think there's about to be a fight in the art gallery uh-huh. well and it's like the two of them this is the first right. time they've ever met 
and they're like sizing each other up and you can tell that they both don't mm-hmm. like each other. Clearly Fisk knows who Matt Murdock is. Uh, I don't think at this point, or I honestly don't remember if he ever does. He doesn't know together. who he is at this point. Yeah. He, I don't think he knows. He knows that he's yes. the lawyer because Wesley was sent to their firm, right. but he doesn't, he doesn't know that he's daredevil. Um, but Matt definitely knows. Right. Matt does know that he's there, oh. yes. Yeah. And he also right. knows, right. That, he Wilson knows that Wilson Fisk is the head of, of all this crime nonsense. And yeah. He knows right. who he really is. I know. I got scared because they've talked before. Um, so I was like, oh, is Fisk right. going to recognize by his voice? And like, he did kind of, he was sounding more, a bit more like this. He doesn't, like you said, he doesn't disguise his voice too much, but gruff angry over the radio will sound different than slightly uptight in an art gallery so so but i was i was getting nervous there and to be fair i know face and kingpin face (laughs) 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 to be fair from personal experience i can say that even some of you guys who i have known for quite a long time in my life are, are less recognizable over the radio whenever robbie and i worked together i had to remind myself that it was him on the other end of the the radio whatever radio he had that day <laughs> it's true i i had that same issue uh, it would be people that i know you'd hear them talking like is that so and so yeah i guess it is so, like you wouldn't know for sure um be like, who the hell is Spooky House 60 today? Oh, wait. I know who that is. Yeah. <laughs> That's Robbie. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's like seeing someone out of a context where you're not right. expecting to see them. Even if you're friends, it might take you a moment to be like, oh, hi. Especially if you haven't seen them in a, in a while. Um, but um, this is a man that he's only talked to once on the radio. I don't think he's going to sit there going, Hey, the voice that I heard several weeks ago, or whatever, <laughs> it's the same guy. <laughs> so, so I guess it, it makes sense, like when when you stop and think about it. But but you don't think about it in the moment, so you're scared. I don't know. Fisk could have uh, super voice recognition powers, kind of like how Matt has like first aid kit detection abilities. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> Murdoch meets his adversary face-to-face, and after a brief conversation, he leaves. When Vanessa asks if he's changed his mind, he says, No, I just have to consider That's a great line. Matt goes to meet with Father Lantham, expressing that he is shaken by realizing someone evil still has something he, someone he loves and who would mourn his loss. That was such a great mm-hmm. moment, too. Oh, my gosh. Like, I loved that. Lantham is convinced Murdoch doesn't have murder in his heart and cautions, cautions Matt there's nothing wrong with that. We get into a little thing about about death, right? Because he's sort of like, this entire episode is about Matt grappling with being the devil of Hell's Kitchen and doing what he needs to do. <laughs> and it's very, and I'm going to bring it up again, it's very Avatar The Last Airbender-y. Uh, Aang trying to figure out if he has to kill the Fire Lord. It's very similar about these these sort of like characters that are trying to figure out their moral compass. And um, Chris, hmm. as far as killing is concerned, this episode handles it and maybe fumbles it a little bit. 
Yeah, the, the, I thought for the most part, this episode, I mean, the, the theme of this episode, the driving conflict in this one, it's an internal conflict that Matt is having. It's a dilemma that he is facing, or as Father Lantern kind of points out, he's choosing to face this. Should he kill Wilson Fisk? Or should he not? Because he believes that eliminating Fisk you know, cut off the head of this this criminal organization and save his city. Uh, so he sees that as as perhaps justifiable. But on the other hand, is that a line he's willing to cross? Uh, he says that you know he believes that he would be damned if he did, literally, because you know he's he's a religious person. Like he he like that's a, that's a consideration for him. And uh, you know, I think the conversations that he has with with Father Lantern, both at the beginning of this episode and at this part, uh, they deal with it with with a lot of great nuance, which I, which I appreciate. Um, you know, when when Father points out that, you know, I think you went looking for a reason not to kill him, and and he found that in Vanessa because, you know, it's it's easy to to justify he. As much as he is identified as the devil of Hell's Kitchen, he calls Fisk the devil multiple times in this episode. Like he believes, I went to see the devil. Uh, you know, he he calls him the devil, and he thinks he thinks that Fisk is the real devil of Hell's Kitchen. Um, uh, for and that he you know walks among them, actually spreading evil. <clears throat> and uh, the when when he finds that reason potentially not to kill him, he, he becomes less of an abstraction of Wilson Fisk, the bad guy, and he becomes Wilson Fisk, the human being who cares about someone and has someone who cares about him. And that brings the morality back into picture for him with it, which I think is really interesting. And then I think it's undermined a little bit at the end because Nobu dies um, in the fight. And it looks like it's not something necessarily that Matt was trying to do because Nobu ends up covered in gasoline. Matt throws his stick. The stick hits a light bulb. The light bulb explodes. The sparks hit Nobu. Nobu catches on fire. Nobu, instead of trying to put out the fire, decides, I'm going to keep on fighting this guy. And then Wilson Fisk shows up and the fight ends and Nobu burns to death. Uh, So, even though... On the one hand, we know that Matt can do things very precisely, even though he's blind. There is enough wiggle room there that you could say that, you know, he didn't intend. He threw his stick. He didn't know the stick was going to hit the light bulb and set the guy that was covered in gasoline on fire. And and Fisk interrupted. But the fact remains that Matt's actions directly resulted in Nobu's death. And we never see if that affects him or not. In this episode or the next episode, even even in the next episode, he already seems to regret that he showed up that night intending to kill Fisk. He, he seems to have regretted going that far. Uh, he was so angry. He let the anger uh, from um, the murder of Mrs. Cardenas, the, the fact that he killed this woman just to get his attention, that just, like, that sets him off like uh, understandably so and 
at that point he is ready to kill Fisk and he doesn't partially because he's been so weakened by Nobu but you get a sense that the next day he feels regret that he came that far uh, at least that's how it read to me and uh but but we don't deal with the fact that Nobu died because of his fight with Matt we we never get a moment of introspection from Matt obviously it couldn't really have happened in that episode because Fisk comes in uh but something you know it, it almost just by the fact that it's not discussed it felt out of place. It, it undermined the theme just a little bit for me. And it kind of reminds me of in the Dark Knight movies, they make a very big deal about Batman having a no-kill rule. But the climax of Batman begins, he's on the train with Ra's al Ghul, and he says, he says, I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. And then he jumps off the train, and Ra's al Ghul dies. Um, then in the next movie, he deliberately saves the Joker's life. The Joker's about to fall off the building and Batman grabs him and saves him because I can't kill someone. That's his whole thing. And they make a very big deal about it throughout all of the Dark Knight. And it's a direct repudiation of of the Batman 1989 movie mm-hmm. where he pushes Joker off the clock tower there. Uh, I think that's specifically what, he was trying, what uh, Christopher Nolan was trying to do there. Um, but... But it's like, okay, what happened? I don't have to save you. He feels like he has to save him because that's what makes him not the Joker. And but they never tie it back to Ra's al Ghul uh, from that first movie. And they do bring it up in the Dark Knight Rises, but it feels like a little bit too little, too late. Uh, so and then he shoots his girlfriend with a plane. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, and and uh, and Catwoman comes in and saves the day with her guns. And she goes, I don't feel as strongly about no guns as you do. So it feels like as much as I love all three of those movies, uh, there is some mixed thematic messaging there. Um, And and I think we get a little bit of that in this episode, too. Um, You know, so so for me, it just kind of undermines a little bit. And especially when we know the kind of person that Matt Murdock is, he would be feeling guilty about the fact that Nobu died as a result of their fight. That like that's gonna that's gonna wreck him with guilt, um, because that's just who he is. Um, incidentally, though, I did look this up uh, just in case anyone was curious. And according to the canon of the Catholic Church, and I quote: "Someone who defends his life is not guilty of murder, even if he is forced to deal his aggressor a lethal blow." So maybe that's his out. Is that church law says that wasn't necessarily murder; it was self-defense. <laughs> But still, yeah, that's still a, killing. It's the classic uh, Catholic Church stand your ground law. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Well, hey, the Pope has an Orlando Magic jersey, so really, the Catholic Church is Florida. Uh, that's... <laughs> oh no. I don't know. The only the only thing that I'm I I could say is that maybe Matt's just not thinking about it yet. And, and I know that that might be a stretch because, like, he just had a, a fight with Nobu. But if you think about it in terms of in those two episodes, how much actual, quote-unquote, actual time has passed between the fight and then him and Foggy talking. Like, he was fighting Nobu, and right as that fight wrapped up, like, right as Nobu caught fire and landed on the ground, Fisk walked in. Like, it was 
it was like that. Mm. He didn't even have time really to think about the fight because he's already wounded. And then Fisk walks in and is like, take your shot. And then they fight and he flees. He ends up in his apartment. And then he's talking to Foggy about all of the lies over the years and that sort of thing. I would, I would venture at this point saying like, I, I don't know if I'd even be thinking about Nobu. I don't even know if I would like I'm later that might come up and be like, Oh shit, I think I killed that guy. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I feel like he just came face to face with the person he's wanted to for a long time, lost in a fight. And now is, has to confess all of this stuff to his best friend. Like, I don't think it's even close to top of mind. Maybe that's, maybe that's what it is, but I don't I know. I definitely get that from a realism standpoint, but yes. <laughs> from when the story you have constructed in this episode is all about this question and then that happens and you don't address it. Uh, it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't ruin the episode for me at all. I loved this episode. This was, I, I know I said this last week, but I think this is my new favorite episode. Mm-hmm. I thought this episode was brilliant uh you're allowed to change your mind with new information (laughs) no uh... wait no 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 i'm an american (laughs) (laughs) that's a general psa to everybody out there when you acquire new information you're allowed to change your mind about things that's called (laughs) flip-flopping that's bad okay but but yeah i mean i mean so so that was like a you know, a little voice in the back of my head going, "Ah, oh, well, that didn't quite quite work there at the ending, but it was not enough to, to ruin the episode for me at all. It was, I thought, just top to bottom, you know, with that one exception, I thought it was a great episode. There are a lot of parallels to this incarnation of Matt Murdock and Batman. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, another similarity you could probably say is that one of the big things about Batman, Bruce Wayne, is his fear of bats and how he has to become the thing that he fears, sort of take on the Batman persona. And the devil is like that for Matt. Matt fears the devil. He fears everything that's going on. He fears becoming this thing, and he understands eventually that he has to become the devil to, to kind of really become the person he needs to be to help the city. And it's time for his enemies to know his fear. Yeah, <laughs> criminals are a superstitious and cowardly lot. So, uh... <laughs> wow, I'd never made that connection before. Yeah, that's me neither. That's great. As Foggy and Matt try to install their new official Nelson and Murdoch sign, Karen gets a disturbing phone call. The three meet at the morgue, where they identify the body of Mrs. Cardenas, allegedly stabbed to death by a purse snatcher. Karen and Foggy tear up while Matt angrily grips his walking stick and we fast forward to the fight from the start of the episode. This is a tough scene. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that was so sad. Yeah, I know I gave it two lines in here, but it's probably one of the most uh, aggressively painful scenes in the entire franchise. Yeah, I think I actually said, oh no, out loud when they pulled the, uh, yeah. uh, the, the sheet down because yeah. I didn't know what to expect. When was I happening. was first, I remember on my first watch, I knew it was coming when Karen answered the phone. You knew something was going to happen, yeah. right? Like, you just knew. Usually I can call what's happening on the other end of the phone line there. I could not there. I was like, oh, what, what I think what, because what? I knew this series was dark, I think I expected her to die from the first moment she was on screen, eventually. That's I, I knew she was going to get refrigerated. Hmm. 
Robbie, I'm gonna mm-hmm. let you say this word. I can't say it. <laughs> you you wrote it. Uh, Chrysanthemum. So Nobu's weapon is a Kaioketsu Shogi, which I may have butchered, and I apologize. I do not speak Japanese. I do know it means something. It means running through the mountains in the sky or something like that is what it translates to. But that's the weapon where you get the the double-bladed thing on a chain. Okay, well, using that, Ninja repeatedly (laughs) hits Murdoch and has the upper hand in the fight. The ninja's mask falls off, revealing Nobu Yoshioka himself. Nobu tells the devil of Hell's Kitchen, you are a worthy opponent. It will be an honor to take your life. At Josie's bar, uh, the Nelson and Murdoch trio mourn Mrs. Cardenas' death. Matt insinuates he doesn't think her death after deciding to stay and fight for her home is a coincidence. As he talks about it, Fisk comes on TV to angrily condemn the murder, blaming people like the man in the mask. Hold up. We're all y'all getting angry. Like, are you watching this getting angry? Because I'm watching this getting mad. I just want to know that I'm not alone. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's really tough. And- the parallels. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I, I did enjoy their... You could say it was maybe a little heavy-handed, but the way they worked the title of the episode in there, when Fisk... They're talking about Fisk. Fisk shows up on TV, and Foggy says, Speak of the devil. <laughs> it's like that actually worked though Roll like credits. they've set up fisk as the devil and they're like yeah you know it... speak of the devil and he shall appear <laughs> strawberries are loaded with fiber <laughs> intestine seas regular bowel movements do you feel it <laughs> karen and matt discuss religion and karen tells him if there is a god fisk will get what he deserves you have to believe that he says, I do. That's very Old Testament right there. Murdoch angrily leaves and after looking at his father's belongings and crossing himself, suits up. The devil of Hell's Kitchen uses his fist to track down Cardenas' killer. He brutally beats her killer, but is unable to get a name of who paid him to kill Cardenas, only a location, which ends up being the location of his fight with Nobu. As he confronts Nobu, Matt pieces together that killing Cardenas was just bait to draw him out we see the start of the fight then catch up to the present where murdoch is able to avoid a hit from nobu which causes a tank of gasoline to leak soaking nobu as nobu is ready to finish a badly injured daredevil matt is able to deflect one of nobu's blows into a light fixture the spark falls on the gasoline setting nobu on fire and after one last fruitless attack he falls to the ground fisk appears and thanks the man in the mask for eliminating nobu Fisk tells Murdoch he's realized he has a weak spot for children and women. Assuming that would extend to the elderly, he baited the hook. Daredevil tells Wilson Fisk to, Wilson Fisk to his face, I'm going to kill you. Fisk responds with, take your shot. Robbie. We finally get uh, the, the first real fight between the Kingpin and Daredevil. How'd it go for you? How did you feel? Uh... It was great. Um, this is this level. This level. This episode. Level nine is <laughs> episode nine's um, got some really good confrontations. Uh, we had the first face to face between Matt and Wilson. We already talked about that at length. Um, and then we have his showdown with Nobu, which is a centerpiece of the episode. 
And when I first watched this, and I don't know if Soundlord feels this way, so I'd be interested in hearing from him. It felt like Nobu was given a lot of weight when I didn't think that weight had been earned through the series to this point. And I thought it was really weird. It's like, yeah, okay, it's the it's the guy from UAC. It's but he hasn't really been given much. Because I didn't know much about the hand in the comics yet, and also did not know where Nobu and the hand were going to go as the series went on. So re-watching this, it's like, oh yeah, no, this is the showdown with Nobu. This is a big deal. But I didn't remember I didn't think that at the time. It was a cool fight, but I thought it was weird that they were making such a big deal out of Nobu. And now I get that. Get it. Um But then of course you get uh, your showdown with Wilson Fisk. Um, you know, we get Daredevil versus Kingpin for the first time physically. Uh, we talked about the original conversation last episode that I think was great. Um, and this time their first fight is short but important. Um, obviously, Matt is in no condition to fight him, but it does establish firmly in once and for all that, you know, you know, a, a cliche about the Kingpin from the comics is he's big and fat and people think of him as big and fat, but he's actually big and strong and a great fighter. And they made a point of making sure that this is the same character in this show and that he is able to take on Matt Murdock despite all his training and all his abilities, um, especially when he's injured. And so, you know, we've been setting up, you know, this whole episode has been about can Daredevil kill the Kingpin? And we've talked about how, and there was a lot of conversation that he might not actually have it in him or think it's right for him to be the person that does that. Uh, but here we also established that also he can't because he's going to get his ass kicked uh, very quickly. Uh, but then also at the same time, Wilson doesn't have it in him to kill Daredevil. He's going to leave it to a lackey. And that's his mistake. He could have finished, you know, this series could have been over because Wilson Fisk could have just stomped on uh, he could have done the same thing that Kingpin does to Spider-Man in, um, which is was flashing through my head in uh, uh, in the Spider. He did do that. Yeah, to him. Did he, yeah. He started to, but that he didn't this finish him this way, that way. Um, and he could have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no. That's where the flash came from. Like, oh, that's the same thing he does in in, in the Spider Verse. Mm -hmm. So he just yep. tells his lackey to kill him. Lackey fails. Lackey being Wesley. Uh, and so, in a very very brief confrontation, I think we get a good setup for. These two, how they differ, can they finish each other, um, establish that Wilson Fisk can take care of himself. Uh, but it was just cool. I think it's great to actually have them come to blows for the first time. I hate you and I'm so mad at you right now. Uh, <laughs> you know, as the show goes on, we continue to see more parallels between Matt Murdock and Wilson Fisk. In the next episode, we're going to get a few, we're going to get a couple interactions, not a couple, but like an interaction with Madame Gao and Wilson Fisk that is strangely similar to the conversations that Matt is having with his pastor. Preacher. Pastor? Preacher? Uh, he presumably is the pastor of that church. Pastor. But, uh, yeah. Um, with his pastor. Uh, and you see a lot of the things where both of them are like, you have to choose what path they're going to be. You can't have the lightness and the darkness inside you at the same time. And so they're, they're con constantly drawing these parallels from these two men, both who want to save their city, but both do it in opposite ways, right? And so I find it interesting that Fist doesn't kill him, that Fist doesn't want to kill him, but he does want someone else to do it. 
yeah, it's a really interesting scene. I think it's cool that they, they, they get this first little meetup. I also think Fisk was like, oh, I thought you'd be better. Man, the man just got, like, stabbed 16 yeah. times, like... Yeah. By a ninja! <laughs> by, by a literal ninja. Taunting, taunting a dude who came into a boss fight with three health. Right, exactly! Yeah. Exactly! Yeah, you, That's what this is! Yeah. You got yeah, you by the mini-boss. Of course you beat him. He didn't have any potions or health left. Like... Yeah. Come on, man. Give him a break. You didn't even give him a save point in between the two bosses. Rude. Murdoch attacks, but Fisk effortlessly beats down his opponent. He instructs Wesley <laughs> to shoot him, but the man in the mask is able to deflect Wesley's shot and escapes. Something about the way that you just said Murdoch sounded like Murloc, because there's like a weird roll in like the Murloc. <laughs> <laughs> Little man Matt Murloc. Matt Murloc. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really Bonnie want them Nelson. to redo this series with Matt Murloc, and he's just like. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if there's some like weird World of Warcraft Easter egg where there's yeah. a Matt Murloc. I'm looking it up. You keep talking. Foggy goes to Matt's apartment to talk to him and arrives just in time to see the devil of the, the devil of Hell's Kitchen limp in, badly injured. He removes his mask and finally learns his best friend is the man in the mask. Peach! You put in the notes, you didn't have a lot to say. It felt like you had a lot to say or during while we talked about the episode, but you just overall thought it was a good episode? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, like, reactively, I guess I had a lot to say about what other people said. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was fine. I don't mean that in a negative way. I don't mean like demeaning it. Like it was a good episode. I enjoyed watching it. Um, it was cool to see Kingpin, even though he was severely weakened. Um, Matt was severely weakened. It was cool to see the two of them fight finally and meet each other. But I don't know. It's it's tough to be super impressed by fights later in the series because of how impressive the ones at the beginning of the series right. are. Like. I think of the hallway fight. I think of how gruesome it is uh, that Kingpin bashed the dude's head in with his car door, and some of the other fights that have happened in the series. And it's not that it's not that Nobu does Matt and Nobu don't have a cool fight. It's just like you know, you you gave me the filet mignon at the beginning of the meal, and now yes. you're giving me a strip steak. Like this is still good. Nope, it's still good, but it's not filet mignon. Strip is better than filet. Well, not everybody I will take thinks that. that. To my grave. That's fine. I would I like you. It's going to be a Robbie opinion. I would like you to make both of them for me, and I will. I will taste test your theory. But you know what I'm trying to say is that, like, you know, you you gave me probably the best fight in season one in the second episode, and so everything else is going to fall a little bit short. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. It's just not as entertaining. So I did like this episode a lot, but nothing about it like really stuck out to me i didn't i didn't see all of the intricacies in this one like you did i saw more of the intricacies in this next episode so what peach has put in the notes was literally robbie you don't have to put this in the notes and then i responded with (laughs) i'm going to put it in the notes because i felt the same way um because literally (laughs) i had my personal notes i had one sentence from this whole episode which is weird 
because this episode was fantastic and I had a lot of feelings on this episode. I just didn't feel like I didn't I couldn't come up with what do I want to put on paper to discuss on the podcast about this episode. I, I knew that stuff would come out as we went through it, but like a specific note of we need to talk about this, I just couldn't come up with. I think it speaks to the strength of the episode mm-hmm. because in some of the other good episodes, it's because there's a moment that sort of carries. Like we talk about the the head smashing scene, right? That kind of carries that episode because it's like, wow, this is a great moment. This episode is good from start to finish, and there's not one moment in the episode that you can point to and say, this is the good part of the episode. It is just a good episode. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I I have the same – I usually have the same feelings when we were, you know, still in the middle of the MCU rewatch. Like, there were some of those movies where I had a hard time coming up with anything to say because I was just enjoying the whole movie from start to finish. Like, what do I point out? You want me to start at the beginning? Okay. I'll start at the beginning. So <laughs> I guess that's probably more of what it is. Yeah. Um, I was just glad you said that. Cause I felt the same way. Yeah. I think an interesting thing about this episode is that this is the episode where Kingpin becomes real to Matt. They've talked before, but here, not only does he meet him face to face for the first time, um, that almost doesn't even have as much of an impact as meeting Vanessa does for him. Mm-hmm. And then seeing him interact with Vanessa because like he tells the priest, you know, someone loves him, someone would mourn him. He loves someone. Um, but in addition to that, he 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 comes face to face with Kingpin the threat, you know, when he meets him as the man in the mask as opposed to meeting him as Matt in the art gallery. And he sees the very real physical threat he is. But another moment is when they're at Josie's and he comes on the TV and he's talking about the city and all of that. uh, I mourn her death and all that. And uh, Karen says, he almost sounds like he means it. And Matt says, I think he does. Mm -hmm. So he's like realizing that, yes, you know, he is this evil, horrible person to me, he is the devil personified. And yet, he really, truly does care about the future of Hell's Kitchen and is doing what he thinks is best for it. Matt is completely opposed to everything he is doing and will do anything he can to stop him, but he's seeing that he's not just a bad guy. He's a man who, with conviction. When Matt and Fisk are talking in the art gallery... Fisk talks about how all he wants is for the to is for the city to be better and Matt can tell when people are lying. Yes. Oh right. And I guarantee oh, you he could he wasn't lying at that point. Yeah. And that probably created some conflict for Matt because he's like, man, this guy isn't lying. He really does oh. want the city to be a better place. Oh, that is that is good yeah you are good at this (laughs) (laughs) oh man i feel like do you remember after i don't i don't know if you read the harry potter books as they were coming out i did okay so so you i know i know the other two of you will not have this experience uh we'll share this but for me after reading book five where we find out that Snape can read minds and can block people from reading his mind, uh, his mind, and he has his lessons with Harry. And then you go back and read the first book or or watch the first movie again, and there's that one scene where he bumps into them in the hallway and he looks at Harry and goes, "People will think you're," and he looks him right in the eyes and then goes, 
up to something. And you're like, oh shit, he read his mind. <laughs> That's, I just had the same feeling when you pointed out that he knows when people are lying and that he knows that Fisk was telling the truth. <laughs> That's how I just felt. <laughs> Yeah, I think he knew. I think he knows, and I think that's something that Matt struggled with, and I think the bait thing happened for a reason, right? Like, I think if that Moses Gardenas thing didn't happen, Matt would have just continued on doing what he was doing. He would have stopped being the devil, and we wouldn't have had any more. You know, that's the end, folks. Like, we've done it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The end of the show. Um, But the show has to go on, and, you know, we have to see these sort of conflicts. We have to see how these characters, you know, do different in these situations. But, yes, I do think... Kingpin does want in his heart for the city to be better, but is going about it at a different means. And I think Matt knows that, but he understands that the means that he's going far through are too far. Well, and what I want to say that I think is important as this show goes on is he does want in his heart what's better for the city, but he wants what he thinks is better. He is not, he's not concerned about the opinions of the people of hell's kitchen as to what is better. That, that is a good point, too. Also, an interesting dynamic is while they both want the same thing, Wilson doesn't really care how he gets there, and Matt struggles with how the best way to get there right. is. Wilson only cares about the ends. Matt only cares about the means. Right. The next episode starts with Matt injured on his couch, having been stitched up by Claire, and being confronted by Foggy. In a flashback, we see Foggy and Matt meet his roommates in their first day of law school before Foggy continues to accost Matt over lying for years, uh, for over lying for years over basically being able to see. An emotional Foggy demands to know everything about Matt's secret life. The more this episode went on, the more I thought, and some of you might disagree with me. Foggy was being a little bitch. And I say that because I just... Every time they have a conversation about something, he's like, why wouldn't you tell me this? And then he tells him another thing, and he's like, oh, I'm supposed to believe that, a ninja? And he's like, dude, this is why I didn't tell you. Like, I can see things that people can't because I have super hearing. And he's like, why Why wouldn't you tell me that? And, like, every single time he tells him a thing that he asks he why he didn't tell him... It's because he reacts poorly to it every single time. Uh, Yes, but also he's learning 100% of the things that Matt didn't tell him over the course of several years in one small amount of time. So, like, if, if you had just learned someone's secret identity and it was your best friend and he was like, also, I can hear you when you take a shit in the other room and I know that you're actually touching yourself and not taking a shit, you'd be like, and you never told me? Yeah, sure. Like, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just, listen, I'm just saying, like, that's a lot. It's information overload. And, like, if some of that information overload was, like... So it was it like it sounds ridiculous. It really does sound ridiculous. Like not only is my face the one underneath the man in the mask, but I can hear your heart beating from a mile down the street. And also I fought a ninja yesterday. <laughs> like doesn't like doesn't that yeah. sound wild to you? Yeah. Yeah, I I'm I'm with peaches on this one. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's the it's what he's telling him. It's the fact that after 10 years or however long they've known each other, 
however long they've been best friends, that he never that Matt has basically been lying to him this whole time. Yeah, like I think if he would have taken that in pieces, like if if one day randomly Matt would have been like, "Hey, Foggy, guess what? This whole time I've had this crazy hearing. Do you want me to tell you exactly what you said when you were talking to the the Greek, not the Greek woman, Indian. the um, the Indian woman in in class the other day, and like and like do something like that? Maybe he'd believe it one step at a time, like piecemealing it, but." Yeah, getting it all at once. It's like, tell me everything, but how am I supposed to believe you? Like, I kind, I get it. I kind of get it. Yeah, I'm moving my time up here because I just really <laughs> wanted to hear. I, I wanted to spend my next point on asking you guys what you felt and how you thought. And Eduardo has very much answered, <laughs> but you know how you felt about Foggy's anger and also how you would feel in Foggy's position. Part of why I wanted to ask is, I genuinely can't decide. I feel convinced by both of them i feel convinced by foggy that i'm not you know that that he feels betrayed that his best friend was keeping a secret from him at the same time i also kind of i'm not going to go as far as call him a little bitch but i i get where i get where matt is coming from i get that this is like how do you just explain someone this to someone how do you just tell them yeah okay so i can actually hear things um and i'm gonna use it to be a superhero someday and also, I'm a lie detector, so we will have a great time as attorneys. Um, and explaining like, the whole sight thing, too. Like, I can't see, but I can see. And then, how, like, how is Foggy supposed to believe yeah. that, too? Like, Which, to be fair, legally blind does not necessarily mean that you can't see anything. So even though that's true. world on fire thing, that which he's still blind. Just because he can see sort of a... God, the only word I can right. think of is foggy. A foggy outline. <laughs> <laughs> Embrace it! <laughs> yeah, don't be upset about that. Yeah. I, I don't know if I should answer you now because I think that my answer to that is it baked into my other point and I don't know where you wanted me to say that. Yeah, it's a little bit later and I think it fits with an important moment, but... Um, okay. Uh, Obviously, I'm not on team. Foggy's a bitch, so... <laughs> yeah. yeah, I... This feels weak and wishy-washy but i genuinely can't decide i feel convinced by both sides i'm um, on team matt had his reasons but foggy's not wrong i mean foggy's I guess justified matt, in his anger if matt had just been honest from day one then spider-man would have been pulled able to pull off the infinity gauntlet and thanos would have been defeated and the <laughs> half the universe would have been snapped away oh my god it's matt murdoch's fault yeah everybody leave star lord alone <laughs> and Brittany. i just don't i don't know man i think it's incredibly complicated and as you were talking to him you as matt is talking to foggy you kind of realize how complicated it continues to get because of how complicated Matt's history is. And then he's like, well, how did you learn to fight? And he's like, there was an old man named Stick. And he's like, oh, come on. Like, yeah. <laughs> like it all sounds stupid when you when you say it all at once like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I guess he could have piecemealed it to him. But even still, like, when's a good time to bring up that you can hear your friend's heartbeat? Like, when is a good time right. to talk about any of this? I mean, wouldn't Matt be afraid that his friends would think that he's a freak, right? Like, he's clearly a person that is a loner. 
he doesn't have a lot of friends. He doesn't have a lot of people around him. And the people that he does, he likes to keep close. The last thing he's going to do is scare them with a bunch of information that's going to make them run away. Although, yeah, and I will also say, to your point, <laughs> Foggy's little freak out about, you listen to her heartbeat without her permission? Like, come on, dude. Like, <laughs> you don't have that's, to ask that's the, permission to hear things. <laughs> that's that's the only point in his argument that I'm like, all right, Foggy, calm down. That's that's the part where I think he's a little ridiculous. Because, like, if he has that level of hearing, you don't choose to fucking hear someone's heartbeat. You just hear it. Eduardo, ask, since yeah. Foggy clearly thinks so, I need you to ask your spouse if there are rules about hearing heartbeats in the courtroom. Because Foggy thinks there are rules about hearing <laughs> heartbeats in the courtroom. He thinks it's unethical. Uh... I would say at the very least it's inadmissible. <laughs> Your Honor, his heart sped up. I believe he's lying. <laughs> Case dismissed. Well, Case dismissed. Yeah, it's pretty... I don't know. I think Foggy is being a little melodramatic. I was being a little hyperbolic when I called him a little bitch. That's fine. <laughs> but I think he's being a little dramatic. You, you literally used that phrase in the notes, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but I think, he's, I think he's going too far. Like, one, Matt is, like, on the couch almost dead. And he's got, like stab wounds all in him and then two i think a really interesting part about this whole thing is when he talks about the first night that he goes out and we haven't gotten there yet but that's that was mm. one of those things that you know it like makes a lot of sense matt why do you do the things that you do and he's like think about what i hear listen to this thing that i had to hear every single night wouldn't yeah. you do something like i understand and I think the part that really upsets me is at the end, Foggy ends up leaving Nelson and Murdoch. And I think that lack of understanding from Foggy is just as boneheaded and like stubborn-headed as Matt's like desire to just continue bullheaded into the whole man in the the man in the mask thing. Like I think they're both bullheaded in different ways. And I think it's there has to be some understanding there for Matt because of this thing that happened right because that's just one example of the things that he has to listen to and if you had to listen to that every single day and you had the power to stop it and you tried every other means to stop it and it didn't work wouldn't you do something yeah i think his reaction to it is maybe a little uh preemptive because it's like the same night like they haven't even really had an opportunity to discuss like how they should move forward, but uh, I don't want to get too ahead of myself. I just like I, I don't know. I have I have more understanding for Foggy's reaction. I think I just think it'd be hard hearing all of that stuff at once. I agree with you. Like if someone told me like I can hear all these things, and one day I just wanted to stop hearing the situation he specifically spoke about in the episode, which I don't necessarily feel comfortable repeating. Um, like. Yeah, I I would also do something about that, but I also don't know anybody that has that level of hearing. I mean, that's all we're you in know? the superhero world, right? Like, yeah, to create this kind of drama, you need this like extra level. But it becomes a a, a question of, of of ethics, right? Like ethically, 
should this person do something if no one else is going to? And I think that's just something that Matt is struggling. And then uh, uh, Foggy is like an echo of his own conscience. Like when Matt is discussing this with Foggy, it's not just him arguing with Foggy. It's him almost arguing with himself, convincing himself, right? Like these are arguments that Matt has had with himself. It feels like since he started this whole thing, which is why he always seems so prepared to immediately answer Foggy back because he's probably asked himself these same questions a hundred times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Madame Gal meets with Wilson Fisk on a Rockefeller Center garden. She warns Fisk not to come after her the way he has Nobu and the Russians in his ambition. And though he claims to respect her too much for that, she says he's become distracted by being in love. Further, she warns him to choose if he's going to be a savior or an oppressor, or others will come for him. In Matt's apartment, Foggy continues to express his anger, this time over finding out Matt has always been able to tell when he's lying. He asks if anything was ever real between them and flashes back to college. The two bond over their future graduation and intention to open a defense firm together. Matt almost slips and mentions his senses. All right, Peaches. We're, we're at your point. Um, let's talk a little bit more about Foggy since we're still on the end. Since we're still on <laughs> oh, the subject. Yeah, there wasn't, that, there wasn't that much time. in between. This is the Foggy second half. <laughs> so i i I actually it's the timing of this episode uh is kind of like weird in my life because like uh like a week ago i i got superpowers just kidding that's not what happened a week ago tell me a week ago i was hanging out (laughs) i was hanging out and um, lying to us for a whole week i was hanging out at (laughs) at a friend of ours who just actually yesterday left florida she moved out of florida um, so I was like saying goodbye to her and we were playing some Jackbox games. Um, I don't know if you guys have played Jackbox six. There's a game in that one called press the button or push the button. It's something, the button mm-hmm. it's basically like among us, but there's like some more complicated features to it. So like, so yeah, like you put that. a bunch of people in a room and sometimes they're aliens and sometimes they're humans yeah. and the aliens get a different question than the humans. And like, um, you answer the question, yeah, whatever. Eduardo and I beat everyone in this. Yeah. So so we're playing press the button, and one of the questions was, if you got superpowers, what was the what is the first thing that you would do? And it was a multiple choice answer. You didn't write in your own. So it was like, it was like tell everybody, keep it a secret, do nothing, and something else. And I answered keep it a secret, do nothing, and she kicked me off of the ship because she thought that I would never do that. She thought I would tell all of you guys and tell everybody. And I was like, sincerely trying to defend myself. Like, no, I'm not going to tell anybody about this. It's too complicated. It's like weird to tell everybody. So like this happens a week ago. I watched this episode the other day and foggy brings up the point when they're arguing where he talks about how, um, if Matt got caught doing something, and he landed in jail or he ended up getting killed or something illegal, whatever, whatever ends up happening. Um, you know, they're Nelson and Murdoch. They're known friends and known associates. And like, even if you didn't tell me if you got caught, what's going to happen to me? Like, what's going to happen to Foggy if Matt gets caught there? Are they going to believe that he didn't know? And are they going to believe that he didn't have anything to do with it? And I think that's a really interesting point that you don't really hear about in this whole superhero identity conversation that every arc of every superhero story has at some point, you know, like 
the superhero tells his loved one or somebody accidentally finds out. You never really hear this angle of it of it doesn't matter if you told me or didn't tell me if you fuck up when you're doing your vigilante, whatever you're doing, they're going to come after me, whether you like it or not. And I just I think that's kind of why one point that Foggy mentioned that um was a unique, but it, it really made me see his side of things a little bit more because at least if Matt would have told him about this ahead of time or whenever, I guess he would have been able to be prepared. He would have been able to do whatever he thought was necessary in their friendship to prevent something bad from happening as a result of him being friends with like a vigilante. You know what I mean? So like, I don't know if I'd rethink my answer <laughs> from, from press the button or whatever. But I just think that um, it was weird that these two things kind of collided in my life at the same time. And, and I, and I think foggy makes a great point. Um, so I don't know, maybe if I do get superpowers, I will tell you guys just so, just so you know, but um, it's just interesting. Have you guys ever heard that angle before from another superhero thing? Cause I have not. I usually ever hear it from the superhero's perspective. I must protect my loved ones. You never right. yeah. hear about them. I don't think so. Maybe Mary <clears throat> Jane and Spider-Man 2. I feel like she kind of has a... Does she maybe, like, decide that she... I, it's been so long since I've seen it. But, but yeah, no, not... It's all. It's always from the, the superhero's angle of, of protecting their loved ones. Right. I mean, I, I think I if think you're gonna fight crime, you should wear a mask. Yeah. It's not to protect you; it's to protect the ones you care about. I mean, I th- it's it's that goes doubly right now for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think yes. obviously this is fiction for a reason, right? Like, it's kind of a silly concept that the only thing protecting your identity from from whatever it is you're doing is just a piece of fabric. Like, you get knocked out one time, and any bad guy that wants to could just take your mask off often for the purpose of the plot that doesn't happen in stories like a lot of times the bad guy will intentionally leave the mask on for a prolonged period of time they'll wait for the hero to wake up and then they'll start to take the mask off and suddenly they get saved by some other hero or they learn that they're miles morales and they have like electricity powers aha you can't take my mask off like something along those lines but it's like or there was it, like in the animated Justice League where Flash and Lex Luthor body swapped and Lex goes, I can finally find out who the Flash is. It takes mask off and he goes, I have no idea who that is. <laughs> but like, <laughs> I guess that's fair. But like the reality is for in in a more realistic sense, if that could exist, like you're talking, someone just literally takes that mask off and now you know, you can know almost everything about them just because you now know who they are. And, and those people that you decided to keep the information from for their safety, it doesn't matter now. Their mm-hmm. safety is, is compromised anyway. Yeah. I don't think I'd ever thought about that, but that is exactly right. So just an interesting point. Yeah, if, if you don't tell your friends, uh, you know, your, your loved ones, and then the Green Goblin finds out who you are and captures your girlfriend, your girlfriend should at least know why she's getting kidnapped by the Green Goblin. <laughs> right. Good point. Good point. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I was going to make a self-deprecating joke, but here we are. It's because she's carrying his children. No. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I want to say that I'm jealous of the other two for not getting that reference. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, you're the lucky ones. Yeah. <laughs> ben Uric spends time with his wife in the hospital, and while they share a sweet oh. moment, she quickly loses her memory and forgets it. That made me sad, too. They are interrupted when Ben... It's just like in Captain learns... America, but it still made me sad. Makes me sad every time. They are interrupted when Ben learns her stay with the hospital will not be able to be extended, and he brings home brochures for senior living centers to look over in his office. It's not just senior living centers, it's hospice. Yeah. It's like an extra... Oh, yeah. Lair. As he does, bulletin editor, editor Mitchell Ellison stops in to encourage Ben to consider retirement or to at least step away from reporting. Yurik meets with Karen in her office to drop off everything he has on the Fisk investigation, saying he's quitting. When he brings up nursing homes, Karen asks him to visit one with her upstate that she feels is important. Fisk asks Leland Owsley to meet with Madame Gao. Owsley agrees, but agrees that Fisk has changed since meeting Vanessa. Madam, uh, Matt admits to Foggy he intends to kill Wilson Fisk after the death of Mrs. Cardenas. Foggy tells Matt there's a legal system in place, and Matt reminds Foggy that sometimes that system isn't enough. In a, sp- in a flashback to their time with Landman and Zack as interns, the two sit in a boardroom meeting, while Landman and Zack flips a lawsuit into pursuit of damages over an ill former employee for the Roxxon Energy Corporation. The experience shakes Murdoch, who tells Foggy they need to be better for people. Foggy is upset to leave Landman and Zack, but unquestionably follows Matt. In the present, Foggy yells at Matt about putting himself in danger, but Matt insists he wouldn't—he wasn't able to live with hearing the sirens or the cries of fear in the city. Foggy accuses Matt of not being able to stop himself, and Matt confirms he doesn't want to stop. Emotional, Foggy tells Matt he wouldn't have kept this from him and leaves. More foggy and mad stuff, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> it's your I mean, turn. To be fair, that's that's kind of this episode. It is the episode. Yeah. You're right. This episode is called Nelson v. Murdoch for a reason. Yeah, I thought that was the tee up, and you can just go. Oh yeah, okay. Sure. I'll, <laughs> I'll go. I'll go. Let me just pull up my notes real quick. I, you know, I um, I pulled the wrong notes. Here we go. Oh, but go with the wrong Sorry. notes. I want to see what happens. Well, it was it was just Eduardo's notes and not. The one oh. I specific myself. This is where you call Foggy a little bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Foggy is a little... What? <laughs> um, they kind of crammed all of the... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The Foggy-Matt friendship stuff into this episode. And structurally, it does make sense why. Um, I do think it would have been good to have seen even more of that leading up to this episode. We get bits of it here and there, but they didn't really... This is the first time they've really delved into their actual relationship. Um, the most we got leading up to to you know Foggy feeling so betrayed in this episode was Foggy doesn't like the man in the mask. Foggy finds out his best friend and business partner is the man in the mask. So so you get that, <laughs> but um, you know there have been there have been little things here and there. So you, you do get the sense that they have a have a true friendship, uh, but it's not until this episode that you see how deep it goes. Uh, that being said, I really enjoyed seeing a depiction of a deep, emotional, true male friendship on screen. 
You know, you know, these are men who are legitimately crying and sobbing because they're about to break up, essentially. And, you know, it's just always good to see, you know, like a non-toxic masculine relationship like that, where, oh yeah, you know, there there is a deep, like, love between these two men. Uh, I mean, it starts off with Foggy talking about how hot Matt is, you know, when they first meet in college. And he's like, hey, you know, you're pretty good looking. He's like, oh, well, we can get girls. I'm going to be your wingman. Um, but, you know, it takes a, a comfortable man to tell another man he's attractive. You know, I think you're all attractive, by the way, um, <laughs> for the record. Hey. Um, hey. Yeah. <laughs> hey. <laughs> um, but... But you know, the, you you see through the flashbacks and everything, and just how how close these guys are, and like how much they really do care about each other, and how much they love each other, and that's why this plays like a heart wrenching breakup because that's what it is. You know, they're both crying. I mean, he's Matt is sitting on the couch crying, pretty much begging Foggy not to leave, and Foggy's crying, leaving. It's like it's it's tough to watch, but it's. You know, it it is not um, self conscious about it though, which is which is really good, and they don't really call attention to the fact that you know they're treating this as a very emotional moment. They're just playing it straight, and and I think that's you know really really nice. You know, something that's good to have depicted in in media in general. I think Agreed. that's a really good point. Nice. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Um, you you we talked about how this episode is all this backstory, and you talked about how it was all crammed in this one episode, which is something we also said about the stick episode. And mm-hmm. it's not that I think the stick episode is bad; it's just somehow it works better in this episode. Yeah, yeah. So I think the difference is that I think the difference is that we've had like eight other episodes at this point of Matt story and foggy story, whether or not they were on screen at the same time, whatever, like they're two people that we should have an emotional investment at this point in the show. Whereas the stick episode, we didn't know who he was, nor did we necessarily have the time to decide that we care. So like we have eight episodes of, of something to go on when they have this talk or nine episodes, I'm sorry to go on when they have this talk. Um, which makes it just more of a uh, word that I'm not going to be able to think of until we've already moved on. You know what I'm trying to say, listeners. <laughs> just fill in. A, it's a Mad Lib. Fill in your own word there. We call it audience participation. Everyone yell, yeah. at, the, yell, yell at your speaker uh, <laughs> what you think Peaches is trying to say. Yeah. Great job. You're right. <laughs> you did it. How much does this... How much of this lack, how much of this, oh my God, I can't even get the joke off. How much does this lack of a descriptor weigh? Enough to break the ice. Hi, I'm Peaches. There you go. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> oh, that was Robbie. That was not Peaches. I just want everybody to be aware of that. Like the old guy from Eight Crazy Nights when you do that. Have you seen Eight oh my Crazy gosh. Nights? I have not seen Eight Crazy Nights. It's been a long time. I know what you're talking about, though. The, his voice, yeah. Which is also Adam Sandler, but... Do it. Yes. 
Karen and Ben Robbie is the Adam Sandler of the group (laughs) reached the posh assisted living community Karen brought him to and Ben asks why they're at a place he can't afford Karen insists they look around she convinces him to follow her into a room where they talk to a resident Mrs. Vistain Karen asks Mrs. Vistain about her previous marriages and about her children Mrs. Vistain insists her son is a good boy and visits her every weekend and tells him tells them uh, his name Wilson Yurik, who had previously, who had earlier said Fisk's mother died when he was a boy, asked if her previous name was Fisk, and she confirms. She says Wilson just wanted his dad to stop. Karen asks her what happened. Real quick, I just need to ask Soundlord, what was your reaction when you realized why they were in this nursing home? Uh, there was it was a couple things. Um, first of all, I was like, when she's leading her down these uh, questions, I'm like. Oh, this is Mama Fisk, isn't it? This is Mama Fisk. And then my reaction after that, after the holy crap of realization was, Karen, you have taken advantage of this man who is torn apart about his ailing life to trick him into joining you and playing detective. And I was very upset about that. Yeah, I felt that way too. <laughs> Why what? are you oh knowing? Did you not I realize know. that? No, 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 no. I realized it. It's listening to Soundlord. It, mm. Oh, okay, oh, no. okay. Oh no, I have a bad feeling about what I'm going to see when I start. No, the next no, 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 no. I can't spoil anything. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna not like Karen by the end of this, aren't I? Oh no, I would like you to text me because I'm confused. <laughs> Because because if I were Ben, because ben, ben in the moment seems like he's like he's like figuring out what's happening here, and there is that part of him that is still the reporter, but also he's been saying that you know he knows the story is important, but he's passing it on to Karen to finish it off because he needs to take care of his wife, and you know he you see the level of comfort and trust he has with Karen when he's like, yeah, sure. I'll go upstate with you to check out this place. I don't know why we're here, but you know, I trust you, whatever. And nope, it's just her playing. I say playing detective and that sounds dismissive of her, uh, which it shouldn't be because she has really like thrown herself into this investigative journalism thing. And, And Ben has taken her under his wing there, but I don't like the false pretenses and I don't like her exploiting his yeah his feelings about his wife and his concerns for her he's trying to find a place where she can live out the rest of her life comfortably which is god willing i mean i'm that's hopefully not anything i'll ever have to deal with and if if it is you know not for many 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 years you know the tough you know i you you think about like you know what if it were me well what if it were my wife and you know it it you know, it, it is hard to contemplate such a thing. And I feel like if I were Ben, I would, you know, once it all hit me, I would probably be furious with her. So that's that's where I'm at with that. And I seem to have given Robbie the answer <laughs> he was either hoping for or fearing. I have an actual ulcer, listeners. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Adult Wilson Fisk hosts a charity ball. As the champagne is served, 
people start dropping and foaming at the mouth, including Vanessa. In another flashback, Foggy first draws the Nelson and Murdoch sign on a Josie's napkin and tells Maddie trust him and is with him until the end. In the present, Foggy throws the actual sign in the trash and leaves. Sprinkling some sad on there, so didn't get enough of it. Just yeah. not the whole everybody You're... dropping from champagne thing. I like I was looking at this drink and going, Nope. Yep. <laughs> yeah, man, this episode is this episode is that the the waitress at the Olive Garden that is shave, shaving cheese under your pasta, and they say they tell you to say when, and you don't say when. <laughs> like uh, <laughs> it's the sad cheese that you never say when for. <laughs> the sad cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't mean to be a joke, but I'm glad that you liked it so much. <laughs> <laughs> big takeaways Chris what's your big takeaway from these two episodes so mainly that just where it leaves off and I feel like this kind of been my takeaway every time is that like wow I, I, I really want to watch the rest these episodes they leave off with each of the main pairs of characters in a very difficult spot you have Foggy feeling absolutely betrayed by Matt I have here in my notes and I don't want to get Robbie freaked out again is that Karen has basically manipulated Ben's concern for his ailing wife to chase down a lead Getting the bad guy's family involved is also never smart, by the way. Um, especially a boy's mother. Watch out. And then Wilson Fisk, the man who would have stayed in the shadows or not for Vanessa, discovers that he is now a very public target as he cradles his poison love in his arms. So this shit's going to hit the fan in the next episode. Is just what it feels like. Um, you know, Fisk wanted to, uh, you know, We've talked enough about Foggy and, and Matt and then uh, Ben and Karen here, uh, but to talk about Wilson and Vanessa there, you know, she's the one who convinced him that he can do more by stepping out, which, you know, threw off everyone else's plans, including his associates, Gao and Nobu and all of them, you know, by stepping out, that's made things more complicated for them. But now... It's like, you know, what Peach was talking about, when your secret identity is blown, whether, you know, whether your loved ones know it or not, they're going to be targets. And now his loved one is a target. And whether he was a target as well, I don't know. Maybe these people were just trying to make a statement, whether they're trying to kill him, kill her, or just give him some negative publicity. Um you know that none of this would have happened if he had just stayed operating in the shadows with no one ever saying his name like he like he liked it at the beginning so it's interesting to see you know how is that going to affect the choices he makes going forward too yeah um my takeaway is pretty much similar to what soundlord said where things are getting really dark and really tense i know where this season goes and yet still on rewatch i just feel like a bundle of nerves at the end of these two episodes with everything that's going on with how many, uh, like he says, there's a whole lot of shit sitting next to the fan and you know that at any second now it's just gonna go off. Um, you know, we, from Karen and Ben finding Fisk's mother, 
uh, the alcohol, the, the, the champagne poisoning plot. You know, we talked about how much of a just a pain pill uh, Miss Cardenas's death was. Um, and then and the breakup of Foggy and Matt. Um, just a whole lot of tense moments, but also a lot of emotional hits. Um, I don't think 10 was good as 9, but it still was incredibly compelling. I, 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 I don't know. Um, and I just really, the reason I asked is that moment in the senior center when you realize what Cameron is up to, like when I was first watching this, that's not really a plot twist, and yet it hit like it was. It still hit like this. It's a combination of things. It's, you don't know why they're doing that. It, it just seems like a side plot where Karen is just trying to cheer up Ben Urich, and then you realize what she's up to. It's like, oh my god. And it hits in two ways. It's They may have figured something out. They may have figured out a way to go after Wilson Fist. They may have you know, unraveled this, this thread, the thread they needed. But at the same time, it's like, oh, this is dangerous and scary. And maybe stupid, um, which is a recurring theme with Karen over the next two seasons. Um, mm. No, I love Karen. I love Karen Page dearly, dearly. She's one of my favorite MCU characters. But this is her. This yeah. is her mo. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. It's, it's, <laughs> um, yeah. So I just I I love this series and I love these episodes and yet I don't feel good. <laughs> I feel bad. How about you, Eduardo? I just can't believe they killed off Mrs. Cardenas. It makes me so sad. Yeah. yeah, I don't have too many more takes on this. I mean, I really, really, really liked episode nine. I liked episode ten, okay, um, but I think it's hard to follow up episode nine. Episode nine was really good. It wasn't like the last time where we had a really bad episode followed by a good episode. This was. A good episode, or like a great episode, followed by a pretty good episode, and so uh, I don't have too many uh, takes on the Foggy episode that I haven't said already about Foggy himself. But uh, I'm mostly just sad about Mrs. Cardenas. Poor lady. Yeah. Pages. I'm just thinking every time we get closer to the end of this um, this season, that it's like my biggest takeaway is that it's harder to not press play on the next episode because like. You know, you get into binge mode with these with these shows, and um, we're we're intentionally doing this episodically so that the viewers don't have to listen or the listeners don't have to listen to a thirteen episode podcast. Knowing us, that would go on for about forty eight hours. Um, but it's it's tough not to press play. I think the difference is obviously those of you that have been listening for a long time know that the real reason that we're doing this is to kind of prepare for the Disney plus series that are like much more closely part of the MCU. Um, I think it's good probably for at least me. I don't know how you guys feel. I think it's going to be good for me that we just literally won't have the ability to press play on the next episode because they're going to release them episodically. So um, that's kind of nice, but man, I just want to finish this damn show because it's good. Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode of Assembly Required, an MCU retrospective. If you want to reach out to us, you can email the show, assemblyrequiredcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, at assemblycast. Uh, we're going to be uh, probably doing another Squad Up episode we haven't done in many, many months. Here pretty soon in regards to PS5, both myself and Peaches both 
have procured. We secured the bag. We both have PS5s. We did it. And we, we want to talk all about it. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Uh, follow everyone on it's Twitter. PhilKid3, GatorSax2010, D underscore Peaches, ABCD, Eduardo1. It's going to do it for myself, for Robbie, for Chris, for Peaches. We love you, 3000. Bye, everybody. Excelsior. Hail Hydra. Bubbly bubbly. Biblioteca, me llamo T-Bone, la araña discoteca. Discoteca, muñeca, la biblioteca, es un bigote grande, pero manteca. Manteca, bigote, gigante, pequeño, cabeza es nieve, cerveza es bueno. Buenos días, me gustas papas frías, bigote de la cabra, es camarón días. Yeah, boy, boy. Yeah. What? It's 2009. Word.